Welcome to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Now your host, Dave Winogren. Welcome to the show that brings together government and industry leaders to accelerate government mission outcomes. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about cybersecurity trends and federal acquisition best practices. On the first half of the show, we're joined by John Dobriansky, a government acquisition professional with civilian agency and DOD experience and a member of the ACT-IAC Acquisition Community of Interest. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Pleased to be here. And we're also joined by Omid Ghaffari-Tabrizi. Omid is the head of U.S. Federal Civilian Policy at Google Cloud, former director of acquisitions at the GSA Centers for Excellence, and also a member of the ACT-IAC Acquisition Community of Interest. Omid, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. John and Omid both contributed to the recently released ACT-IAC report, Pre-Solicitation Best Practices. But before we talk about the report, let's start with you, Omid. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about your work at Google. Sure. Appreciate it. Again, um, like you mentioned, I'm head of the U.S. Federal Civilian Policy over at Google, and uh, my focus is on cloud and Google public sector. I think with that Google public sector part, my background at GSA, where I was at an 18F login and COE has been quite helpful because uh, I do tend to have a bias towards uh, all things acquisitions. And one of the nice things I think with the public sector team in particular, and kind of what drew me to uh, Google after my time in government was the fact that there are so many former feds uh, and even some state local government employees here. So I've been able to kind of keep my government hat on, so to speak, uh, as we have a lot of folks who kind of quote unquote get it. And, and that's been a, a lot of fun and a great experience. John, you and Omid are both members of the ACT-IAC Acquisition Community of Interest. Tell our audience a little bit about the COI and what led to the creation of the pre-solicitation best practices report. My background, uh, Director of Contracting and Acquisition, uh, Department of Defense, uh, multiple agencies, Army, Navy, Fourth Estate, et cetera, um, you know, leadership on major system services and information technology through $10 billion, and also a, a civilian agency leadership, um, member of the Civilian Agency Acquisition Council and longtime contracting officer. And... Um, you know, very passionate about acquisition, and I'm a, a, a subject matter expert and leader in, in that area. So the particular white paper, um, you know, it's important because acquisition incomes uh, and success, in particular successful acquisition incomes, are the result of a partnership between industry and government. And um, IAC, in fact, uh, does a lot to enhance the relationship and engagement between government and industry for uh, successful acquisition outcomes. So this, from a pre-solicitation perspective, you know, technology is always advancing rapidly, uh, whether it's information technology, cybersecurity, next-gen air traffic uh, modernization, or um, weapon systems, etc. It's always moving forward at a very rapid pace. And the government requirements community doesn't necessarily always have the full big picture of the uh, uh, technological advances out there. And so the, from a, uh, that engagement in, you know, prior to the release of the request for proposal is critically important for government requirements folks to have an understanding of you know what's out there 
and what the capabilities and also you know from a far perspective far part one you know encourages uh government and industry and engagement you know for requirements improvements as well as competition uh and uh, for uh, successful acquisition outcomes and this white paper is a real important first step in promoting that in the government and industry acquisition community. Omid, anything you'd like to add about the importance of the work of the COI and the circumstances that led up to the creation of the report? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, a lot of what John just ran through is uh, a big part of why I was so excited to see ACT-IACT taking this on. I mean, you really get some incredible perspectives and experiences that uh, turn into some real actionable uh, recommendations. And I think this white paper really gives that. And uh, uh, to, to John's point, pre-solicitation process is, is so critically important in, in laying the foundation of what can ultimately be not only a successful solicitation, but also uh, an optimal post-award phase. And, and just seeing kind of uh, how public sector and private sector approaches to pre-solicitation practices take place now that I've kind of sat at a few different seats on the table has really just kind of doubled down to me the importance of of making sure folks really pay some good attention to what they're doing uh, prior to issuance of an RFQ. And, uh, you know, the white paper itself, I think just uh, running through the executive summary in the intro really hits home quite nicely about uh, just how important those things are. So, so yeah, not much more to add but, but, but behind what John had mentioned there, but I guess uh, just double downing on on just the importance of ACT-IAC really taking on this uh, taking on this project. It is important work. And Omid, let's stick with you and do a little myth-busting to start our conversation about the report. One of the focus areas of the report is the importance of government acquisition leaders engaging in communicating with industry leaders to optimize the outcomes of government contracts. What's some advice that you'd like to offer on the imperative for more dialogue with industry and how to encourage and foster that dialogue? Sure. Yeah. I, 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 there's a good section in the white paper on two-way communication uh, that I think mm-hmm. uh, folks should really take a look at. And, and I think it really hits on, on quite a few of those points that, that I think are important to emphasize. Because, you know, having these open, dynamic conversations is, is so important to not only giving uh, government teams the ability to kind of keep their finger on the pulse of what is happening in industry, right? Uh, to John's earlier point about how fast and rapid advances in technology are happening, especially in these days with cloud-based technologies and the emergence of AI and ML. It really is just moving at a, at a clip that requires kind of constant communication, constant market research uh, to, to take place. And I, I think uh, when it comes down to, to communications with industry, one of the things I would like to, to just kind of make a point, and again, it, it's really covered nicely in the paper, is just sort of the two types of conversations you can really have and and make the most of your time with industry. There's, you know, sort of the market surveillance questions, which are a bit more strategic, focused on some of that higher level stuff. What's happening in this space? What are the offerings that are available to that would impact an agency's mission? And and then also some of those more tactical uh, market investigation type questions, right? Many of the types of uh, questions that you'll be asking in this phase will be kind of drilling deep down into a particular requirement. There may be an active uh, procurement in mind when you're doing this, but, but they'll help you focus on who or what tool would be able to provide the government 
with the ability to implement or achieve those previously defined good approaches or outcomes that you've kind of gotten from that surveillance phase. And I mentioned phases, right? And I think this is, again, something that we, we point out about the continuity behind kind of good market research. They, they tend to happen in parallel, right? They don't necessarily mm-hmm. happen in linear stages. What you'll learn from a, a strategic discussion will influence an investigative discussion and vice versa. Uh, so I think when it comes down to just making sure solutions are being developed and designed for government needs, and also government is able to find those solutions, there's really very few ways that you can you, you can achieve that beyond having those good open lines of communication out there. Open lines of communication are just so crucially important. We're going to take a short break now, and when we return, we'll continue our conversation with two of the contributors to the ACT-IAC pre-solicitation best practices report, John Dobriansky and Omid Kafari-Tabrizi. I'm Dave Wendergren, and you're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC. I'm Dave Wendergren, and we're discussing the recently released ACT-IAC report, Pre-Solicitation Best Practices. Our guests are two of the contributors to that report. John Dobriansky is a government acquisition professional with extensive experience both in civilian agencies and the Department of Defense, and a member of the ACT-IAC Acquisition Community of Interest. Omid Ghaffari-Tabrizi is head of U.S. Federal Civilian Policy at Google Cloud, former director of acquisitions at the GSA Centers of Excellence, and also a member of the ACT-IAC Acquisition Community of Interest. John, when we were going to break, we were talking about the importance of dialogue, and uh, I know that that's a, a, a big point in the, in the report that you guys worked on. So I wanted to give you a chance to add on about the importance of government industry dialogue to improve acquisition outcomes. So I can't say more than enough for uh, government and industry dialogue. Um, There have been so many myths, um, you know, over the years, and yeah, Dan Gordon and Leslie Field and other folks at the Office of Federal Procurement Policy have been good about putting out Mythbuster uh, memos, but some people get it, some people don't. Uh, The bottom line is is there's an open line of communication one-on-one between the government program offices and industry, you know, the the point that goes up to the point of where the uh, formal request for proposal is released. And then, yeah, there's the, the commitment that communications need to go through the government contracting officer. But prior to that, in the pre-solicitation phase, you know, it's heartily encouraged that uh, industry partners reach out to, you know, government agencies and those, you know, particular solution sets that that they're interested. And same time from a government agency perspective, one of the uh, areas that I believe that Department of Defense does well, a lot of agencies do advanced planning briefs for industry or APBIs as they call. Uh, In fact, I was, you know, one that uh, just this past March when, you know, a number of army agencies, uh, ACC, Space and Missile Command, uh, Missile Defense Agency, and others did a uh, advanced planning uh, brief for industry. And, and that brings out information, not only what the opportunities are that are out there, but also, you know, this to start engaging in terms of capabilities, 
um, requirements definition, and then also, you know, what technological ad advances are uh, are out there that can be incorporated, you know, prior in the pre-solicitation phase, uh, which is very important. And again, it encourages that one-on-one -on -one interaction, you know, between uh, the various uh, communities, the requirements communities, the program executive offices and program management offices and industry in order to have that exchange uh, so that, you know, uh, government is targeting the right contractors, the, uh, the right vendors, and from an industry perspective that they can be, you know, put forward excellent solutions and be very, very competitive in a uh, uh, competitive solicitation phase. So again, that um, interaction between government and industry in the pre-solicitation phase is crucial to successful mission outcomes. John, keeping with the theme of dialogue, why don't you share with our audience why market research is so essential and the importance of what the report refers to as mission-focused questions? So market research is essential. One, it's required uh, under FAR Part 10. But, you know, that being aside, it's just so crucial to the government knowing, A, what potential technology solutions are out there and how um, those solutions can gain better mission outcomes. And um, also from a, a solicitation development perspective, to have that visibility you know, in market research. And market research, you know, typically in, encompasses a number of, of areas. One, uh, using RFIs, requests for information. That's certainly an important area. Uh, industry days, that, that's another important methodology in market research. And then um, uh, GSA has a number of good uh, uh, tools out there for to you know help agencies do um, uh, market research and market research again it uh, helps validate the requirement solution it helps bring industry you know together so that companies understand what the government needs and what they are looking for and helps it provide for better acquisition outcomes. Most government agencies have something called PALT, procurement administrative lead time, and uh, market research is critical in many ways to help reducing PALT in addition to acquisition uh, innovation techniques like other transaction authority and others. So if you get the requirements package and the RFP done right the first time, uh, you won't have to have the contracting officers issue you know, multiple amendments over time uh, which actually, you know, uh, contributes to lengthening pulp. So, yeah, uh, market research is critical to uh, um, successful um, uh, solicitation and acquisition outcomes. Omid, anything you'd like to add on the imperative for good market research and, and the focus on mission and outcomes? Yeah, I think um, one, one idea to just kind of uh, pile on a little bit there uh, is to kind of step up a little bit on the industry day uh, portion of, of uh, uh, the recommendations, right? There, there's also a thing, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of uh, successful reverse industry days, which kind of hits on the mm -hmm. point John was mentioning about having contractors come in and actually pitch independently some solutions that may help uh, advance some of the missions of these agencies because they've kind of more or less put out, hey, this is our problem. Contractors, please come and tell us what you what you would be able to do to, to provide a solution here. So 
really it's that communication that market research helps to build new knowledge as much as it, it helps to kind of validate existing findings which i think is a super useful when it comes down to working towards a integrating and implementing emerging technology into in, into an environment. Um, maybe we can do a quick lightning round. Uh, another area of best practice in the report is uh, acquisition planning. I mean, anything you, else you'd like to add about the what you learned from doing the report on acquisition planning? Yeah, I'll say is a, a written acquisition plan was always one of the best ways for me to kind of keep my cross-functional teams organized while I was at GSA. Uh, and, and just working with teams that you can kind of tell they have one when, uh, when you see sort of the sophistication from the government side in terms of the strategy and approach they take, and I think really underscores sort of the importance of having a, a good acquisition plan. And one of the parts I really like within the paper that we emphasize is the importance of the reusability of templates and tools, right? The less time I have to spend thinking about how I'm going to stay organized, the more time I can spend thinking about how to find the best path forward for my set of requirements. We've got about two minutes left. I'd like to give you each an opportunity to offer some parting advice to our audience of government and industry leaders on continuing to improve government acquisition. So, John, why don't we go to you first, and then we'll give only the last word. Okay, thank you. Some best practices going forward. Um, one from a government side, I use a statement of, of objectives. Um, that gives contractors more capability to give better focus technological solutions rather than in a performance work statement telling them what we want. So that that's critical. Uh, another area is, um, I believe, in terms of, you know, uh, best practice, incorporate the proposal into the contract. Different agencies and different contracting officers have different opinions on this, but it basically introduces that whoever the contractor is selected as the awardee, whether that's under a best value trade-off source selection or other, uh, that, that there's accountability and that both parties know and understand, uh, starting with the you know program management kickoff meeting uh, at post-contract board as to what each is accountable for in order to make successful mission outcomes. Very good. We've got about a minute left. Omid, what's some parting advice you'd like to live with the audience? Yeah, I'd say, uh, and I and I feel ACTIAC is going to help provide the guidance for this, but keep the entire acquisition lifecycle in mind. This paper is focused on pre-solicitation, but if you think about how this actually will be implemented once it's awarded, and keep in mind some of those post-award issues that you will run up against, you'll be able to kind of ensure that you keep that competitiveness and that innovative approach uh, when it comes down to time for a renewal or option exercise. And you get down into the questions about interoperability, portability, compatibility, things that can help you really fight vendor lock. And I think that ultimately gets back down to the point of why is pre-solicitation work so important? You set the foundation for what your future will look like. You both have brought up such excellent points. The pace of change is just so rapid. And we have to talk more, not less, to each other in order to get the best practices that are coming in from the commercial world into government. John Dobriansky and Omid Ghaffari-Tabrizi are both members of the ACT-IAC Acquisition Community of Interest and acquisition executives in their own right. Their recently released report is titled Pre-Solicitation Best Practices. You can get a copy of it on the website, and you'll hear more about that later in the show. Thank you both for taking the time to join us today. When we return from our break, we'll be turning our attention to cybersecurity. I'm Dave Wintergren, and you're listening to Accelerating Government. 
brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. I'm Dave Wenergren, and we're discussing cybersecurity trends and opportunities with John Gilligan, President and CEO at the Center for Internet Security, longtime technology industry executive, and former CIO at both the Air Force and the Department of Energy. John, welcome to the show. It's great to have you back on. Dave, thanks. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a long time since we've done done this type of radio show, so great to be here. And it was the same full disclosure for the audience, you know, but we've, we've been working together for decades and decades. So uh, that's right. It's great that the adventures continue on. Why don't we start with a little bit of an introduction? Tell us a little bit about the work of the Center for Internet Security. Sure. Um, so the Center for Internet Security, it's a nonprofit organization uh, formed in 2000. The objective of the organization is to uh, focus on improving the state of cybersecurity globally. And so we have a number of products and services that we provide. And a couple of the products are what we call benchmarks, which are commercial products. Um, we take the configurations and through a consensus-based project uh, process with uh, experts around the world, we come up with configuration settings and we call these benchmarks. Uh, they are provided on our website and downloaded about, about a million times a year. Uh, a second best practice is what we call the uh, critical security controls. And like uh, the NIST 800 and the uh, cybersecurity framework and other frameworks, IEEE and ISO, consists of a set of uh, security controls. The difference in our critical controls are that they are prioritized based on threat. And so uh, organizations can then have, this is what you should do first, second, and third. And then I would say, finally, uh, an increasing part of our work is supporting uh, state, local, tribal, and territorial government organizations. Uh, For that, we get some funding from the federal government, and then we have some products and services that we provide directly. Uh, But our objective here, like uh, our other uh, efforts, is to improve the state of cybersecurity uh, we do. We share best practices. We have webinars. We share threat information. We do uh, monitoring. We have several different types of devices that we uh, provide that provide monitoring, and then we do incident response and recovery. So, uh, in a nutshell, that's what we do in improving. Uh, I, I'll mention now, as we're going to talk about it later. Uh, we've also we're now in the 14th year of operating the uh, program that we call Cyber Challenge. Uh, U.S. Cyber Challenge. This is a program um, that is intended to uh, identify um, those best and brightest in the cyber industry and connect them among themselves, but also connect them to uh, government and industry leaders. It's a quick overview. It's a, it's a great portfolio of work. And I'll say you're certainly working smack dab in the epicenter of one of the top topics in the federal technology market. Why is cybersecurity such a hot topic for government? And what are some of the current challenges that should be top of mind for our audience of government and industry tech leaders as they look towards the year ahead? Well, Dave, I think that's a great question. And I think I would start by saying that increasingly organizations, governments are no different, are being impacted by the increasing threats uh, being uh, coming from the cybersecurity domain. And some of these are 
um, uh, threat actors are nation states. Some of them are, are uh, those who are criminals who are just looking to exploit. But increasingly, the sophistication of the threats have caused many government organizations to uh, not be able to perform their functions, or in some cases, perhaps even worse, they have had uh, sensitive data uh, of the public that has been compromised. So this has become uh, a, a really an imperative for government organizations and industry alike to, uh, to tighten down defenses, to be much more agile and responding to threats uh, that are literally changing every day. And, uh, you know, so because it's such an important topic, as you point out, we're delighted to be partnering with you and your organization, as well as Luke McCormick and the U.S. Cyber Challenge team on this year's Cybersecurity Summit, which takes place on October 4th in Reston, Virginia. Why is it important for busy government and industry leaders like yourself to take time out of their hectic schedules to attend events like this? And what are some of the things you're excited about for this year's event? Well, in general, I think it's vitally important for government leaders, both those that are in government, but also those who are in industry supporting government, to be aware of the, the issues um, that are being faced, but also of the opportunities and the new developments so they can more quickly respond in uh, implementing these types of techniques and approaches. So it, these forums, um, like the, the upcoming conference, become an opportunity to listen to experts, but also to network, to find out uh, from your peers um, what organizations are doing, what's working, um, and, uh, and to uh, you know, make connections that will, uh, will help you in the future. Uh, in addition, as we will have at the conference, uh, the best of the best, if you will, in the uh, U.S. Cyber Challenge winners, um, though we will use the opportunity to present awards, um, we call it the Cyber Bowl. Um, this is the culmination of really about a six-month process where starting in the spring, we had over 2,000 participants participate in an in a online uh, event, and then the, um, they progressed into those who performed best, went to summer camps, and the summer camps are a bit different than some of the other types of events. It's not just technical. It's also uh, teaching ethics, um, you know, uh, doing resume writing, job interviews. And so those who perform best in the summer camps are about 200 participants, then move into the Cyber Bowl. And the Cyber Bowl will be held uh, 29th and 30th of September. Uh, and again, it'll consist both of a full 24-hour capture the flag with teams um, participating. The, these are the best teams from the summer camps. And as well, um, they will, each team will be given a problem to solve, and they will then make a presentation um, to a group of CIOs, um, chief information security officers, and CEOs who will grade um, both their presentation and the performance of, uh, of them in the 24-hour uh, cyber competition to finally figure identify who is the winning team and that, that'll be that'll be uh, announced on October 4th at the uh, at the conference 
It is really an exciting thing, and it's such a wonderful program for those in our audience that don't know about much about the U.S. Cyber Challenge. I encourage you to go go do a little research on it. Um, you know, obviously at the conference, there's a lot of great senior government speakers, which one of my favorite things to hear what's top of mind for them. But I have to admit, one of my favorite things about the annual cyber summit that we do with you is getting to meet these college kids and like who are just full of passion and, as you say, are the cyber workforce for the future and uh, see their energy and what they bring to the room and, and their interactions. Plus, you know, it's a great place to find your future workforce, as you said. So uh, maybe we'll take a minute and let's look more broadly at the market. You're, you know, you're in the middle of so many cybersecurity things. I should also mention John Gilligan is a sage for the Partnership for Public Service, in fact, leads the CIO sage community. So you have a lot of lenses through which you look. And I'm just wondering, what are some cybersecurity trends that you're excited about that you're seeing in the federal market or or perhaps that should be top of mind for federal agency leaders? Well, I, I think for, on the protection front, I, I think what we're seeing is increasing opportunities for smaller organizations. And this uh, maybe what I would start is by saying, um, larger organizations have the advantage of resources, people and dollars. Um, those organizations that we're seeing most frequently succumb to cyber attacks are the smaller organizations less well-resourced. And so one of the trends that I think is very exciting is that we're able to see um, technologies like endpoint technology, uh, protected DNS, um, you know, putting uh, capabilities into the cloud where smaller organizations can leverage um, either remotely managed or, you know, uh, remotely uh, controlled, you know, types of capabilities. And I think that's going to be important to uh, get us over the hump for organizations that you know, don't have the organic talent or resources to be able to provide protection. So I would say that's the trend that I would think is probably the most exciting. Very good. We are going to take a short break. And when we return, we're going to continue our conversation with longtime technology leader, John Gilligan, who's the president and CEO for the Center for Internet Security. I'm Dave Wintergren, and you're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC. I'm Dave Wendergren, and on this half of the show today, we're discussing cybersecurity trends and opportunities. And I'm delighted to be joined for the discussion by John Gilligan, who's the president and the CEO at the Center for Internet Security and former CIO at the Air Force and the Department of Energy. John, as we were going to break, we were talking about some cybersecurity trends, and I thought maybe we could continue our sort of walk around the federal technology market and, uh, and maybe the next thing we could talk a lot about a little bit is tech modernization, which, of course, remains a top priority for government. What's some advice you'd like to offer on modernization issues and, and some next steps that you think government should be focused on, particularly given the cybersecurity advantages, I'll say, of moving off of legacy systems and applications and hardware no longer supported? I mean, the, the fact that so many federal agencies are still spending the majority of their technology budget on aging gear is certainly a cybersecurity impediment. Yeah, Dave, as you as you know, and, and many of our those in the audience know, modernization of our government tech infrastructure has been uh, a priority for quite a while, and it's proceeded slow. And I think there are a couple of what I would point out as lessons learned that I think are important to consider as we go forward. Uh, first has been the progress has been slow, largely because of resource limitations. 
And some of that has been helped by Congress now. So we have the Technology Modernization Fund, which has allowed um, the opportunity for organizations to come forward with proposals to modernize technology and to be able to get, if you will, uh, upfront money to move forward. And so that's very helpful because often organizations don't have the ability to find the money in the budget. So that's one. So there's now resources available. I think second, in my experience, one of the things that I found most uh, important was to focus on modernization projects that are, I'll call them bite size, that are able to be accomplished. I think unfortunately, sometimes in the federal government in particular, we try to take on you know, the, the big problems up front and they're just far bigger than anything else anybody would ever try in industry. And as a result, we stall and we're not successful. And of course that discourages everyone from doing you know, similar efforts. Uh, I, I do remember a discussion I had once with the CIO and some of the staff at General Motors and we were talking about some things we were looking to do within the, uh, the Air Force. And at one point, as we described it, you know, you heard this sucking sound as the people were sucking through their teeth going, well, I would, we would never try that at General Motors. That would just, that just would be way too big for us to take. So we, we break it in smaller chunks. And so I think that's really wise advice is to um, focus on things that can be achieved and then deliverables in the modernization projects that are really uh, focused on months, you know, a couple of months initial capability, a couple of more months, you know, uh, and using what we call agile uh, development techniques. So I, I think it's, it is, it, as you mentioned, Dave, it's, it's just vitally important that we modernize, yes, to improve cybersecurity, but also to improve the quality of what we're providing to, to our citizens um, who need, who need better support. And, and there are many uh, federal agencies that have done a good job of dramatically improving um, their interface to uh, citizens. And uh, and I think that's great, but we, you know, we still have areas where we can improve. Yeah, you, you made some great points there, John. I, I love the small bite-sized thing. I mean, everything from you know, DevSecOps and all this sort of modern agile way of doing business talks about you know engaging the customer and doing things in a way that you can make deliveries in six months rather than six years. And to your point, particularly where you and I worked in the Department of Defense, you know, they're very big projects and they can take a very long time to deliver. And uh, and there's great power in pilots and experiments, doing things where you can sort of step outside of the comfort zone of the organization and not get in the way of the program of records and, and show that something is actually demonstrating a result before. I'll say it gets consumed by the antibodies of the status quo. So, that, so you know, so, yeah, so there's a lot of great reasons to think about breaking things down into smaller project sizes. And, and you mentioned the Technology Modernization Fund, which which, as you pointed out, has been a huge help for certain agencies be able to get a little funding to jumpstart the projects. And, and I was delighted to see a year or two ago, the cybersecurity was listed as a priority element for that. And, and so, and, and then the most recent announcement was uh, projects that will help implement the 21st Century Idea Act, which is the one about bringing digitization into government too. And so if you were, if you were advising the TMF folks, are there some project areas that you would like to see them, them ask for government to submit proposals on? Well, yeah, I, I, so my, uh, I guess my priority would be a couple of fold. First, um, 
I always found throughout my career that focusing on those projects that have the most significant mission impact are where you want to put your money. Um, and and when I say mission impact, in many cases, the federal government, these are efforts that that directly um, interface with the public and provide you know services to to the public. And and that's where I think really the government needs to put their emphasis and. And uh, Dave, as you mentioned, again, doing in, in small bite-sized chunks with, you know, feedback to, you know, bringing in um, subsets of, of the, uh, of the uh, constituency that are going to be the users of the system to give you feedback along the way. So I think that's, that's where I would put my priority. Um, it's often very attractive for organizations to do the back office stuff. So the human resources and finance, et cetera. And the difficulty with those are um, there's a tendency to try to use commercial products. And the reality is the government processes and procedures for finance and HR procurement are so different than what the commercial systems are designed to implement that yeah, it's very difficult to be able to implement those systems in a, in a rapid way. And it's very difficult for organizations to make changes to their policies that might be necessary to use the systems. And so what ends up happening, and you know, Dave, you and I have seen a number of examples of this, we, we end up going down the road trying to take a commercial product and modify it. And, uh, and that's, a, that's, that's, a, that's a very, very tough, uh, road to hoe. And so I think you want to get some confidence, you want to get some momentum, focus on small things that are going to be directly benefit to citizens uh, and uh, and improve their uh, their quality of life and, and their trust and confidence in the government. Those, those are great points, John. And, and the fact that you want to do something in a bite-sized manner that you can implement quickly doesn't mean you should be doing things that don't matter. And if you can focus to your point about the mission outcomes of the organization, then you'll have the, the workforce with you and you'll have the Congress with you, have everybody supporting you. Sometimes I feel like, you know, technology, we get in the way of ourselves because we spoke, focus our time on little things that we could do that aren't very helpful. You know, like making the website a little prettier it might be slightly useful, but not nearly as important as meeting a crucial mission outcome project. And, and as you rightfully point out, you know, it's so much of this is about the process change work and people implications that have to go along with the, the implementation of new technology. So I'll just say from there, thinking about the implementation of new technology, we find emerging technologies all around us. You know, we need to look no farther than, than any event that ACTIAC does and chat GPT and generative AI is all the rage now, but, but there are many other kinds of new technologies that are, that are, are, are big doings at the moment too. And so, you know, it's important for the government to keep pace. And so I'm wondering if you, if you have some ideas around emerging or new technologies that government should be focusing some time and attention on. Well, you mentioned generative AI and, and obviously, you know, anyone in the tech field is aware of this, um, you know, rapidly uh, uh, maturing, you know, type of technology. Uh, and so I, I think my advice to um, organizations would be embrace it, but do it cautiously. Um, there are a number of, uh, of issues and concerns um, that are, you know, uh, that come with these technologies. There are some benefits. Um, and so uh, they sort of picking up on your earlier point, it's now time to do pilot projects. Try, try some things. 
uh, learn. Learn what the advantages are, learn what some of the limitations and the risks are um, before you, you know, you, you charge, uh, in a, you know, a whole hog way. I think, uh, you know, obviously quantum computing is an area that there's a lot of um, expectation and promise. We still have a ways to go, but I do think that organizations should begin to look at when quantum computing matures, what is, what's the impact gonna be on their organization? And so uh, the encryption systems that perhaps uh, are able to withstand current uh, computing technology, but not in uh, quantum, um, you know, begin to identify those so that we know, or, you know, there are some quantum resistant uh, encryption technologies that we can start to move to and, and we can then, you know, kind of get out in the head of, head of the, uh, head of the, the trans transition curve that will likely come, you know, nobody's quite sure when quantum's going to be, you know, there and mature, but again, I think it's wise, given the size of government organizations, to begin preparation activities. Embrace the new technologies, pilot, and, and get you know put plans in place so that when it is more mature, you're ready to move out. And to that point, if you want to learn a little bit more about quantum computing, check out the Accelerating Government episodes website because you'll see the episode we just did recently on on all things quantum that you should be thinking about as you move forward. John Gilligan is the president and CEO at the Center for Internet Security. John, thank you for your outstanding leadership in the federal technology community and for joining us today. On October 4th, ACDIAC and the Center for Internet Security are hosting the 2023 Cybersecurity Summit and U.S. Cyber Challenge Awards Ceremony in Reston, Virginia. In addition to recognizing the young cyber experts who won this year's U.S. Cyber Challenge, you'll also hear from a number of government cybersecurity experts and have an opportunity to network with other leaders on some of the top cyber topics facing the government. ACTIAC's Imagination ELC conference takes place on October 29th through the 31st in Hershey, Pennsylvania this year. You won't want to miss the opportunity to join your fellow government and industry executives as we tackle the top topics in the federal technology market. This year's theme is the business of doing, and we'd love to see you there. If you'd like to learn more about the ACTIAC pre-solicitation best practices report or register for any of our upcoming events, check out the Federal News Network website or go to our website, www.actiac.org. I'm Dave Wintergren, and you've been listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACTIAC on Federal News Network. Thanks for listening to Accelerating Government with ACTIAC. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Accelerating Government on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts.